Welcome back to The Business, The Guardian's podcastable guide to the economy, the credit crunch, and the search for the upside of the downturn. On this week's show, we're looking at the good, the bad, and the sort of cuddly. We'll give our verdict on Barack Obama's handling of the economy in his first 100 days in office. Is he providing the change that America needs? Plus, when the going gets tough, the super rich get going. We'll analyse the real impact of the government's 50p tax plan. And we discuss the softer side of money by talking charity, seed funding and angel investment with social entrepreneur Rod Schwartz. I'm Adit Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio this week, Deborah Hargreaves is The Guardian's business editor. Have you had time to recover after Budget Week, Deborah? Oh yes, of course. It was like planning the D-Day landings, as one of my senior editors said. (laughs) And Jill Train is our banking expert, and we understand this is your first time on the pod, so we'll be on our best behaviour. Thank Jill. you. I'll try to be good. And finally, it's a pleasure to welcome Rod Schwartz, social entrepreneur and CEO of Clearly So, a website that pairs social businesses with investors. Good to have you here, Rod. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We'll hear more about Rod and his ethical approach to the business world a little later. But we'll start this week with Rod's fellow countryman, Barack Obama. For everywhere we look, there is work to be done. The state of our economy calls for action, bold and swift, and we will act, not only to create new jobs, but to lay a new foundation for growth. We will build the roads and bridges, the electric grids and digital lines that feed our commerce and bind us together. Starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. Yes, that's Barack Obama, 44th President of the United States, Guardian Easter Wet Dream, and, if all goes according to plan, saviour of free market capitalism. He came to power 100 days ago, promising to bring about hope and change. A good job too, because Uncle Sam's economy could do with a big dollop of both. George Bush left the Obama administration with a massive recession, a housing market meltdown, and the biggest financial crisis since 1929, shaking the foundations of American capitalism to the core. The banking, auto and construction industries are all in a state of crisis and some are on government life support in the form of multi-billion dollar bailouts. So what are we to make of Obama's attempts to fix the economy? And how's that bank bailout going down? Here's Richard Adams from The Guardian's Washington office. But first, our Wall Street correspondent, Andrew Clark. He got off to a really bad start on that because people didn't like uh, Timothy Geithner, the Treasury Secretary's initial presentation of his plan. People felt he was being too vague, that he didn't look confident that he had a kind of deer in the headlights look about him. So Geithner really had to come back a second time um, and try to uh, try to repair the damage. They have come forward with a plan which mixes public and private money to clean up banks' assets, toxic assets. And that has been greeted with um, a degree of uh, praise. But again, like the stimulus package, it's just too early to say whether it's going to work. We're really in kind of completely uncharted waters as far as the uh, semi-bankrupt banks are concerned. And nobody really knows what's going to work and what isn't. Okay, so two quick questions then to both of you. Your judgment on the 100 days and your outlook for what the economic outlook for America is. Richard. Well, I think that the 100 days, I mean, he's, he was handed an appalling uh, uh, situation to deal with. And to my mind, he's probably done as, Obama's probably done as well as anybody could do because it's not obvious that there are any particularly good options lying on the table that are available. There are a lot of people who say that uh, he should be much more fundamental in the way he's dealing with the the banking system and 
adopt a sort of Swedish model of nationalising all the banks and then writing off all their toxic assets. I, I just think that's fundamentally almost impossible given the size and scale of the American banking industry. So he hasn't done that, which I think is probably a good thing. So he's probably done as well as he could. As for the economy, I, I expect it will start to recover by the fourth quarter of this year. So by autumn, winter, we'll, we'll start to see uh, some, some decent uh, economic numbers, uh, if only because the previous year's numbers are so bad. OK, so quite positive. Andrew, what's your take? Uh, well, I'd say that um, so far the Obama administration's approach towards the economy and particularly towards the banks has been um, kind of disaster relief. I mean, if you think of it like an earthquake, we're still, we're still really um, cleaning up the debris and, and putting people in temporary housing. Um, and uh, the rebuilding, the real rebuilding is, is yet to come. In terms of the banks, yes, they've possibly made some progress towards stabilising things, but we don't know yet whether, whether Obama is going to be able to achieve the permanent change in culture that's needed on Wall Street to prevent risks getting out of control in the future and to clamp down on outsized pay packets. Um, in terms of the economy, I mean, I agree with Richard we might see the beginnings of recovery in the final quarter of the year. One of the key things is going to be unemployment, which is still rising um, despite any signs of hope elsewhere. And as people lose their jobs, they spend less. So uh, clearly, if unemployment reaches 10% or above, that would be very concerning. Richard Adams in Washington there joined by Andrew Clark and a dodgy phone line from New York. Well, here in the studio, we have Deborah Hargreaves, Jill Trainer, and Rod Schwartz. And it's to you, Rod, our resident American that I turn to first. Obama was elected on a great wave of optimism that here was a guy who could really turn things around. How far do you think he actually has managed to do that? There's nothing you could do in 100 days. It will be four or five years before we know whether or not Barack Obama has made a difference, has brought along a change agenda. I think for people to judge him now on the basis of 100 days is just ludicrous. He inherited a financial system in meltdown. It was, it was imploding. And actually, his policy choices were few and far between. And he did, I suppose, what you had to do which is just kind of follow what your predecessor had done and try to ride out the storm. And in that sense, it's actually worked perfectly well. I think to imagine structural change, behavioral change, profound change is just madness. He had no choice and he had very little to do anything with. OK, but before he came to power, there was a lot of talk about Obamanomics. Are we any closer to working on what Obamanomics really is? I think Obama hasn't worked out what Obamanomics are. I think a lot of outsiders imagined that he had a different way for America to work. But America's not going to work very differently. It might change a little bit at the margin. And I think he's trying to work that out for himself. But his main objective was to stop the system from melting down. And that he's by and large achieved. Deborah, what do you say to that? He's achieved that, though, Rod, hasn't he? By throwing a huge amount of public money at the banking system, for example, and more to come. And I mean, the thing that rather shocked me about the um, toxic assets was that he's giving private investors a huge donation of government money to buy up toxic assets from these banks, which, I mean, presumably they can't lose if they buy them because they get so much of a subsidy for doing so. 
The other thing that I think is quite worrying is that the chief execs of these banks, Goldman, for example, has said, um, you know, we've got to pay back this money to the government. We've got to pay back our government loans just so we can get back to business as usual and start paying big bonuses again, which I don't think can be right. And surely Obama has got to stop them doing that. And then the third thing I'd say, I don't want to ramble on, but um, today um, we've had um, Bank of America and Citigroup um, look like they probably fail their government stress tests and need to raise more capital. The market is completely selling off on the back of that. And I just think... um, those banks are probably in, in complete dire straits. I just, you know, what's going to happen to the U.S. banking system? It's, it's, it's not fixed yet, is it? Well, there are quite a few banks that are in serious difficulty, obviously, and you've pointed them out, and there's, you know, large and small banks of which that's the case. I think, Deborah, you're absolutely right. He's thrown an extraordinary amount of money at this problem, and he's lumbered future generations with a huge bill to pay. Having said that, I don't think he had any other policy options, frankly. I do think there's a day of reckoning to come. I think the day of reckoning will come, particularly for the Goldman Sachs and the like, who not only controlled their bank, but also were sitting in the Treasury office for a decade. So I think there will be a dec- uh, uh, There will be reckoning for those people and for people like them. But I think for him to have acted in a crisis to seek victims would have undermined his ability to solve the crisis, which I think he has done. Well, Jill, you're the banking expert, so let's bring you in, because Gordon Brown is often compared unfavourably to Obama because Obama's young, smart, came in with a great deal of popular goodwill behind him, and Gordon Brown is Gordon Brown. Um, but it's not that clear that there's that much difference between their handling of the crisis. It's not that clear that Obama's doing that much better than Gordon Brown, is it? Well, you can certainly agree that they've both thrown a lot of public money at the banking sector. That's um, undeniable. What we don't know about Gordon Brown is whether or not some of his schemes are going to work in the same way we don't know if Obama's plans are going to work. The asset protection scheme, for instance, which RBS and Lloyds have signed up to, you know, they still haven't signed the fine print. We still don't know exactly how, how it's going to work. It's, it's a bit of uncertainty that the market's sort of forgotten about. And what Deborah's talking about here, about the fact that these two US banks have apparently failed their stress test, which has caused more anxiety here about... God, are we going to need to put more money into RBS, Lloyds, Barclays, you know, HSBC, heaven forbid, you know. And there and are and suggestions also, also that the banks go- here could the, need more money. The government's not making these banks scale back in any way. You know, in fact, if anything, they're getting bigger. And surely we should be saying, look, they need to go back to basics, back to basic banking and not, you know, they need to be smaller and trimmed back and reined in. Well, the, the exception to that possibly is RBS, which obviously is, is going to rein in this huge corporate bank, investment banking operation that caused these... Well, we're essentially at the heart of the problems there last year. But the fact is that Lloyd's, they've created this huge bank, you know, a massive bank. And you can understand why the, the Tories think they should break it up. Rod, you respond. There is a difference between Obama and Gordon Brown, which is quite profound. And there are two aspects to it. The first is that uh, Barack Obama did nothing to create the crisis and can't in any way be blamed, whereas Gordon Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer (laughs) and responsible for financial regulation. So he's partly to blame and heavily to blame. The second thing is that I think if you look at what they're each trying to do, I think Barack Obama is trying to deal with the problem, whereas I I suspect on some level, Gordon Brown is thinking of politics. And a lot of this rescue is around trying to, uh, to create a quick recovery so we can win an election in a year. OK, let's leave that one there. To have your say, leave your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And for more on Obama's first 100 days, you can find comment and analysis, podcasts and videos, bells and whistles from our team at guardian.co.uk slash Obama.
Now, with the economy down in the dumps, charity is hardly the first thing on people's minds. Not only that, but with investors keen to keep hold of their assets, there's not as much money swilling around to fund startups and new ideas. Well, our guest Rod Schwartz is involved in fund management, investment and charity. We've heard from you about Obama. Now we're going to turn the spotlight on you. How much is charity suffering in a downturn? Um, we don't have statistics yet, but I'll give you one anecdotal statistic, which is reliable. I used to be chairman of a business called JustGiving.com. JustGiving organizes charitable giving for the London Marathon, which we just had this weekend. And they reported that charitable giving was up 18%. So if you can think of a discretionary item, charitable giving has to be at the top of your list. And the fact that year on year, it's up 18% for Just Giving is quite an interesting statistic. But is that simply because Just Giving's a website and people are still migrating across the web, whereas uh, older forms of charity may be suffering? I'm sure that older forms of charitable giving are suffering, but I see anecdote after anecdote which documents the fact that things that are social are getting increasingly focused on, things that are ethical are getting increasingly focused on. I don't think this crisis we've had is just a recession. I think it's something more profound. And I think in the aftermath of this crisis, I believe you're going to see an economy that looks a bit different. And I think the things that are ethical, things that are environmental, things that have a social component are actually showing signs of relative growth. Look at socially responsible investment funds, charitable giving, organic food sales. Across the board, things with an ethical dimension are stronger in relative terms than the economy at large. Now, that brings us to kind of a, a big question, which is how do you reconcile business with ethics? Because you're a social entrepreneur, which I've always thought of as rather a funny hybrid vehicle. So does my wife. Are you, are you social or are you entrepreneur? Which is it to be? I mean, how do you marry up those two, those two opposites? Are people just one thing? Do we live in a world where I have to be either A or B? I think the reality is um, we live in a capitalist system, and I think it's going to be that way for some time. Why don't we deploy some of the things about markets that are positive, some of the things about entrepreneurship that are positive, and use it in a way that is socially beneficial? Yeah, but business is about the bottom line, whereas charity and all that social stuff is about nice things. I think charity is about all those nice things, but I think social business and social enterprise are things that use those entrepreneurial methodologies to actually bring about positive social outcomes. Look at Just Giving, which is a hugely successful business. It's risen in value from about $5 million to about $70 million in six years. Great business. And it's been responsible for £420 million going into the charitable sector much more successful than any other government-backed venture to bring money into the sector. What's bad about that? Jill, what do you think? I, I don't know. I just wonder if, 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 if money is tight and people are being asked to take cuts in salary or you know, b- b- being um, subjected to pay freezes, whether or not what they actually do is any savings they were doing, will they stop those first? You know, and then they keep giving money to charity. I, I, I'm trying to work out whether or not th- th- that's the case. If, if you've got direct debit set up, say, around the place, what do you pull first? Savings, that? Jill, I think I you're know. quite right. There's no doubt that with people's uh, pockets really, really emptying fast that there's going to be some cyclical downturn. But I think over the next few years, you're going to see the ethical dimension to investing, the ethical dimension to consumption, and to kind of the way people live, grow and grow and grow. And I've bet my career on it, and I'm very confident it'll come about. Well, I think people are looking for a new answer to this crisis. I think people are looking for something different than the 
classic return to business as usual. And they are looking for, for, for a more ethical dimension to business. Just look at the way people feel about the city now and about bankers. We're looking for someone with a few morals to stand up and say, you know, I'm a businessman, but I've also got a conscience. And maybe there is another way. There is another way. I'll give you an example. I teach uh, at, at Oxford at the business school. And the fastest growing curriculum area by far is social entrepreneurship. So here are people with lots of options. They could go work for investment banks. They could work for consulting firms. But no, they want to work for social businesses and social enterprises because they think it'll marry the social and the financial. And are they still getting the funding? Are good ideas still getting the money? Of course they are. Good ideas. In the middle of a massive recession? They are obviously finding a little bit more difficult. But yes, they are. And I have anecdote after anecdote to share with you on another occasion. Thanks a lot, Rod. And there's more about what Rod does on our business blog. Now then, time for a bit of music. Eat the rich indeed. Now, what betting that Alice Darling's had that on rotation on his iPod over the past fortnight? One headline from the Chancellor's budget last week was a new 50p top rate of tax for those earning 150k and above. Add to that the new Sunday Times rich list, which made for particularly depressing reading for Britain's 1,000 billionaires, who have seen £155 billion wiped off their assets. That's right, I said assets, in the last 12 months. And my, how the heart bleeds for Elton John, down to his last quarter of a billion, Roman Abramovich and the Earl of Watsit. Now, Deborah, you've been spoiling for a fight over the top rate of tax, so what's your take? I think it's absolutely shameful the way the British media has covered this uh, story. Every single paper, including sometimes The Guardian, has come out with very negative stories about the 50p tax rate and um, quoting businessmen who are ready to leave. Michael Caine's ready to leave, apparently. Andrew Lloyd Webber is off. Well, do these people ever go? I mean, do they really want to go and live in Switzerland? I mean, Peter Hargreaves, who runs a um, financial advice firm in Bristol, for God's sake, says he's going to go to Monaco. Well, how can you run? How can you commute between Monaco and Bristol? It's ridiculous. This has got helicopter. Well, well, I suppose you could do it by helicopter, but I mean, you really wouldn't. Who wants to live in Monaco? Have you ever been there? Yes, yes. It's I just a course. horrible place. And um, not bad. Well, well, it's just oh, Rod, Rod, Rod. But Rod, speak up for the entrepreneurs here. Oh, no, I'm, I'm intrigued by this debate about the merits of Monaco. Oh, come on! This, this is this goes against everything that you 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 advise to do to encourage entrepreneurship in the. I think the budget was pretty unimaginative and a very political budget. And I think it's perfectly fair, the principle of rich people paying more. But I think that this 50% tax rate was designed to uh, for an election campaign rather than raising any money. So So you'd be quite happy to pay 50p? I would be very happy to pay 50% tax. It's not, I, I, I think that the tax system is where you deal with the problems created by a capitalist system. And I support that. I think that that's fine. I'm not, though, amused by or uh, in favor of the Chancellor's proposal because I think it was a cynical one designed for an election and not for addressing a serious problem. I mean, I mean, I'm no political expert, but I've got to say that 
it's more of a problem, isn't it, if Cameron gets in? What's, what does he say then about tax? I mean, it puts the heat on him straight away. He'll say nothing. He's, he's going to uh, accept the 50% and move well, on. Well, you, he, can't, he can't defend it. I mean, I mean, he can't, you know, he, he, he's got to carry on. There's, there's no more money. No, exactly. But, but, but Jill, you hang out with masters of the universe. I mean, are any of these people actually going to leave the country? Look, I think a lot of them will moan. I think that if you're possibly uh, an American and you think maybe this is a bit too much tax, will you go home? Well, what will you do? You know, if you're a French person, are you going to go back to Paris? Well, what are you going to do? I mean, as long as the financial services industry in London isn't killed unbelievably by this tax rate, I don't think it'll change. Do I think that the average Brit working as an investment analyst or an investment banker in the city is going to move? Honestly, I don't. People moan about this stuff all the time. I I think it's crazy. I I really do. There's a great, um, you know, there's been some interesting stuff this week about great cities to live. One of them is Vienna. You know, I think there's, I am no expert on Austria, but I think the tax rate in Austria is pretty high, frankly. You know, mainland Europe, they have high tax rates. But you can move without moving. And one of the stories you've been doing this week is about bankers based at Barclays who are being paid from companies based in Delaware. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can get around this. Well, that's what needs to change. And this is the point. Will it increase the tax take? How much? And I think that's the point you're trying to make, isn't it? Uh, Precisely. I mean, people that have flexibility can move around and avoid anything. It's when the government shows real sense of purpose of dealing with that, then I think the issues of tax rate become relevant. By the way, I do think we are starting to see movement. A lot of the pressure on Switzerland and other offshore tax havens, that seems much more sensible because that will increase with the existing tax levels, the tax take. And I think that's something I'm in favor of. The uh, 50% tax rate only comes in above £150,000, which is a pretty decent money. Well, it's a lot of money, and that's the other thing that I think the debate has has, has um, failed to take account of, that um, it's being cast as a tax on Middle England. This isn't Middle England. This is super, super rich elite, and it only covers 350,000 people anyway. So it's really – it is a political move, and it's to appeal to the Labour heartland. But it really is – People have aspirations to earn that much money, but very few people actually earn that much money. And I think the um, the, the tax relief, higher rate tax relief on pensions, that move um, is a very, very welcome one. It really should have been um, a move to reduce the um, limit to how much you can put into a pension, because a lot of people in the city have avoided paying tax by putting £250,000 a year into a pension tax-free. That will obviously be changed because the, that higher rate tax relief will go. But they should have also moved at the same time to reduce the limit. It was Labour that increased that limit, by the way, and it was always a ridiculous move. You're absolutely right. And that's why, as the budget was going on, the group of shares that got hit the most were fund managers and insurance companies, because people knew exactly what you're saying. But Jill, one of the great defences for having the city and having these people pay those huge sums was a trickle-down effect that the money they made would eventually find its way into the pockets of people below them. Rubbish. Yeah, well, that's not true. No, no. Well, not. I mean, you know, th- there is an idea, isn't there? I mean, I'm making these numbers up. I, don't know what, I can't remember what they are exactly. But you know that for every person in the city, there's half a hairdresser, three shoemakers, uh, you know, that, the corner yes. shop and all the rest of it. Yeah. But the reality is, I suppose... What the city had done was given, it gave London a feeling of affluence. You know, house prices in certain areas were all nice and strong. I mean, what's interesting, you've got this 50p tax rate thing going on. You've got the banks being told that they've got to be much more thoughtful about the way they pay bonuses. If you work at RBS or Lloyds, you're under a very tight regime. You've got the FSA breathing down your neck about your pay schemes. So if you had joined the city thinking this was a way to make easy money quickly and not have to pay a lot of tax, then it's it's potentially changing the way you spend your money, I suppose. Well, when I love the when way I'm being made the apologist well, for the city, by the way. It's making me really happy. 
that. When you meet these bankers, though, you realise that they live in a different world from us, a completely different world. They don't use public transport. They don't use schools that we use. They don't use the health system yeah. we use. They Everything is private and they go around in chauffeur-driven cars. They don't really impinge on the kind of public infrastructure of London I mean, at it's all. True. I mean, there are these statistics, aren't there, that I read in The Guardian, I'm delighted to tell you, about how primary schools in London apparently may not have enough places now because of all the people that might have gone to posh prep schools exactly. and now going into the education system. Well, that tells you something about the trickle-down effect. The great as a child, as a, as a person trying to get children into primary schools in London, this is, of course, um, of particular interest. The great sham of the last 25 years was trickle-down economics. It didn't work. It simply resulted in a transfer of income from everybody to the top 10%. Mm. And that is something that has to be reversed under Barack Obama and the next UK government. Okay, well, listen, uh, we'd better stop this latest dispatch from the Socialist Republic of King's Cross. Um, and on that note, uh, time to shut up shop for another week. We'll be back in seven days with a brand new podcast looking at the week's economics news. In the meantime, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. My thanks to the panel, Deborah Class Warhol Greaves and Jill Trainer from our business desk and Rod Schwartz from a bit further afield. Our producer's Ben Green. I'm Edith Chakraborty, and that was The Business. <laughs>